Tonight, I wanted to talk to you guys about something that none of you in this room ever have experienced in your life. That something is failure. I just know this group well enough to know that, you know, you may hear some good things about some other people, but nobody in here, not, not me, not you. You guys all know the, one of the most famous quotes about failure, right? If at first you don't succeed... No, I wasn't thinking of that one. I was thinking of the one that says, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving's not for you. <laughs> I want to tell you that we're going to be talking about failure up front because it's not readily apparent in the passage that we're going to be in. But I think you'll see why we're landing on this topic as, as we dive into it. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you know we just started into this book of Acts and this series, Go, the Motion of Mission. And we learned how Acts is a sequel to Luke. It, it carries on the story of what Jesus began to do and teach and tells us what Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. And last week we talked about how Jesus hung out with his disciples for 40 days for one main reason to show them, I really am alive. I really did rise again. And he gave them irrefutable proof of that. And he told them, hey, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go into all the world. And it starts in Jerusalem and goes to Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth and tell people that I'm alive and that I'm the only way to the Father. That's your mission, to be my witnesses. And our section ended with them staring up into the sky as Jesus rose into the clouds and the angel said why do you wait here he'll come back just as he said and you remember he had told them to wait to wait for the holy spirit so we're going to pick up right after that event where they finally stop looking up into the sky thinking of the good old days with jesus and they start to walk back to an upper room together maybe the same upper room we're not sure but it could have been the same upper room where those disciples had the last supper with Jesus. If that was the case, imagine the memories in that room. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. There's another interesting point. Mount of Olives was where the Garden of Gethsemane was. So they saw him ascend very near to the place where they had spent that last intense night of prayer in the garden before he was arrested. A Sabbath day's walk, that's about three quarters of a mile from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. Whose name is missing from that list? Judas Iscariot. That's right. Let's roll on, Misty. They all joined together constantly in prayer. I love that. Constantly in prayer. Prayer was not a side note for the early believers. They depended on it desperately, that conversation with God, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. I want to just camp there for a second. I want you to think about that. 120. And we know, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, by the end of the book of Acts, within 30 short years, the gospel would have traveled from that small group of 120 people in Jerusalem all the way to Rome, the capital of the empire. 
it would grow exponentially. In just a few days, it would grow by 3,000 after Peter's first sermon. But here's the beginnings, 120. God never despises small beginnings. In fact, many of Jesus' parables talk about the, the mustard seed. It's the smallest seed, but it grows to the biggest plant. You could read about the leaven, the little bit of yeast that goes in the dough, and it spreads through the whole thing. That's the way God's kingdom works. Go ahead. And Peter said to them, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. You can imagine the the looks on the faces of the crowd as he even mentioned that name of Judas. He, He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Check this out. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. Do you guys know what it means that he fell headlong? He hung himself. Jack Sparrow language, quick drop, sudden stop, mate. All right, it's not the best Jack Sparrow. (laughs) His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. This is PG-13. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. And here he goes on to quote these verses from Psalms. Check this out. It is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, And may another take his place of leadership. And if you guys want to do something interesting, look at the footnotes in your Bible at what Psalms those came from and go read those Psalms. And if you're like me, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I would have never in a million years had any idea that the Holy Spirit was pointing to Judas. Because the rest of the Psalms seem to have nothing to do with that. But God knows. And it just made me think, how many little things like that are there in our Bibles that we just have yet to learn? That, that blows my mind. There's so much more that we have to learn. Go on, Misty. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what's the job requirement? They're looking for somebody to replace Judas. They're not content with just 11. They want 12. He had to be someone that was with him from the time Jesus was baptized to the time he rose again. Because they had to be a witness of that. And I thought about this. I don't know why God had to have 12, why he wasn't cool with 11. It made me think about my brother-in-law who didn't know I was going to say this. But like if he's, if he's got volume on his television or any other uh, gadget that has numbers on it, he always likes it to be on an even setting. If that volume's on 13... <laughs> It just drives him crazy. You know, he's got to move it up to 14 or down to 12. Is that, is, does God have that same characteristic with Stephen? And then I got to thinking, no, he seems awful fond of the number three and the number seven. So that can't be it. Uh, maybe there's some correspondence between these apostles and the 12 sons of Jacob. I don't know. For whatever reason, God wanted 12 of these guys, 12 tribes. But they got to pick somebody to take Judas's place. Next verses, please. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas, strong words here, left to go where he belongs. I don't know exactly if he's talking about the grave 
or Hades, but Peter's speaking strongly here. Next verse. Then they cast lots, basically that modern-day equivalent of drawing straws. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. And I had someone jokingly ask me today, hey, since those early apostles cast lots, is that mean you should preach that it's okay for Christians to go to Vegas and, and gamble a little bit. I jokingly said, as long as they tithe on whatever they win. That's... <laughs> I don't think that's exactly what this is saying. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting, a couple things about that. This is the last time you see casting lots mentioned in the Bible. It was common in the Old Testament before the Holy Spirit lived in God's people. You never see it again. It's almost as though God's cut it off and says, hey, you got me living inside you now. You don't need to do that anymore. I worked through it in the past. He worked through it here because the Holy Spirit had yet come. He's about to. And they chose a guy named Matthias. Interesting thing about Matthias, you never hear about him again. They chose him. You don't hear anything else about him. And some have said, well, maybe they made a bad choice. You know, he obviously didn't have a very eventful life for Jesus. But that's an assumption because you never hear anything more about Matthew or Bartholomew. So we can't go there. God led them through this process for some reason to choose Matthias. Now, I looked at that passage on the surface, and I've got to admit, I almost skipped over this passage for our series on Go the Motion of Mission, because I'm like, can we just jump to where the Holy Spirit came and Peter preached this awesome sermon and 3,000 people got saved? This seems kind of weird. Like, what's, what do we even learn from this? And that's where I started to think, yeah, we learned some interesting facts about this passage just breezing through it. But I think in this passage, there's a strong lesson about failure. And what do we do with our failure? Another word is not as popular today, but the Bible uses, what do we do with our sin? What do we do with those times we fail Jesus? And the reason I see that in this passage, who is it leading this meeting? Peter. Peter. And who is it they're replacing? Judas. Judas. Okay. Now I want you to think about the end of Jesus' life. Are there two other men more known for failure at the end of Jesus' life than those two? No. I mean, they're, they're legendary for their failures, right? Judas. I mean, we almost say his name with us. People don't name their, their kids Judas anymore. <laughs> People don't name their kids Herod or Jezebel either. They picked names like Stephen did for his kids, Joshua and Caleb, because those guys loved God. I used to think they didn't pick the name Delilah because of what happened with Samson, but I actually met a little girl named Delilah. I, I bit my tongue and didn't ask the parents, do you know if she's named after a seductive woman who, <laughs> who trapped one of God's men and lied to him so his power would be taken away and he was imprisoned and eventually died as a result of... I didn't go there. But there are names we just don't name our kids because they're, they're notorious. And Judas is one of those. He betrayed Jesus. And he betrayed him the worst kind of way, a kiss, the most intimate action students would do towards their rabbis. It was a sign of respect. They would do it towards their teachers. It's a sign of respect on the cheek. And that's how he betrayed him. We even know of Judas' kiss as sort of a metaphor for our sin today, right? Any old-timers like Petra, like I do? I'm not saying I'm an old-timer, but I like them. Maybe I am for some of you guys. 
They even had a song. How many of you guys have heard the song, Judas Kiss? Where, he, where they talk about, how does it feel to God when we sin today? How does it feel when the prodigal won't come home? How does it feel when we disobey? And the chorus says, it must feel like Judas Kiss. And then we got Peter, right? The one who said, I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll, I'll go to the end with you. And Jesus told him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And Peter, in self-preservation, denied three times while Jesus was on trial that he even knew the man. We even have a phrase that we use today based on Peter. When someone fizzles at the end, what do we say? They're, they petered out. <laughs> so these guys are famous for their failures. But you look at what their failures led them to and the, the contrast couldn't be any different. Judas' failure took him to suicide, hanging himself in a field, alone. And Peter's failure took him somehow to a place where he became the leader of this Jesus movement that would rock the world. And what I want to look at tonight is what made the difference is not that Peter was some perfect guy and Judas failed, We just said they both failed big time. The difference between the outcome of their lives was what they did with their failure. And I think there's there's three ways they differed in what they did with their failure that we can learn from. And before we talk about the differences, just a couple quotes that have meant a lot to me about failure. Erwin Lutzer, one of my pastors in Chicago, wrote a book called Failure, The Backdoor to Success. And as we begin to look at Judas and Peter... I want you to think about these quotes. He said, those who have failed miserably are often the first to see God's formula for success. The second quote is, what is failure? It's living with perverted values. It's being hooked on one or more of the three worldly motivations, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. What is success? It is learning to apply the grace of God. It is understanding how we can be accepted by God despite our bitter experiences and failures in the past. Getting our hands around God's grace. So why did things turn out the way they did? It was because of what they chose to do with their failure. Now, before we go into their choices, I want to admit that God's plan, God's sovereignty, had something important to do with this. He knew what Judas was going to do. He knew what Peter was going to do. And neither of them surprised him. God is in control or he's not. And I believe that he is. Early on in Jesus' ministry, remember Jesus said in John chapter 6, I've chosen you 12, but one of you is a devil. Imagine sitting in that conversation. (laughs) Hope it's not me. He also said at the Last Supper, he said, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But listen to this. Woe to that man who betrays him. It would be better if he had never been born. There's another heavy bomb that Jesus dropped. Even those Psalms prophecies, thousand years before Judas was ever around, God knew, and this was all part of his plan. In John 17, verse 2, Jesus is talking to his father. He says, I've lost none of those you gave me except 
the son of perdition. That's what one older translation says. Newer ones say the one destined to perish. One other one says the one doomed to destruction. God's sovereignty is at play here. Even with Peter. You remember that big conversation where Jesus says, hey, who do you guys say that I am? And Simon Peter, the bold Simon Peter, I love this. All the other disciples were sitting there listening. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He had predicted to Peter that you will be a key part of the foundation of this church. I will use you in a mighty way. Last Supper with Peter. Remember I told you he's making those bold claims? I'll never deny you, Lord. Jesus told him, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Interesting, they prayed for Simon, but not for Judas. God's got a plan here. He is sovereign. He makes choices. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. They predicted his failure. We also predicted that he would turn back. God was in control, but they made choices too. And that's the balance we got to hold with our lives. You guys have all heard the old debate. Is God sovereign in his choices or do we have real choices? Both are true. And whenever anyone gets too arrogant at one end of that spectrum and holds on to it, and and I've seen people even get mad about it. I saw them at my Bible college screaming at each other in the lounge about, is God sovereign or do people have choices? Whenever people get too arrogant at one end of that, they're as arrogant and narrow-minded as any of the Pharisees or scribes ever were. I think what we need to do is say, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he leaves it on us to make choices that have consequences. How they fit together exactly, I'll ask him when I get there. Okay? But both are true. And now I want to look at their decisions after their failures and talk about why Judas led to despair and suicide and why Peter led to him being the leader of the early church from their choice perspective. The first one. First difference, when Judas sinned, he ran away from the rest of the disciples. He went out on his own. He betrayed Jesus. And humanly speaking, you can understand this, right? Okay? He just betrayed the one they all loved. And Jesus told them who it was. Besides that, you got Peter, the the earwhacker. in this group. I mean, he took Malchus, that high priest servant in the garden, and changed his hearing from stereo to mono with, with one whack of his sword. Jesus ended up healing the guy, but Judas probably feared for his life. If I go back and these guys know what I did, they don't have the spirit yet. They, <laughs> besides that, he was already sort of an outsider. Okay, he was the only of Jesus' 12 from Judea. That was the area around Jerusalem. All the rest of them, all 11 of them, were from Galilee, which was like the mountain country where the, the mountain people lived. <laughs> so he, they, they also knew he had been stealing along the way from the treasury, so he, he already wasn't the most popular. He was a little bit on the outside. This would just push it over the top. So you can get why he ran away. But what I see in that... 
And that's in contrast with Peter, who we'll talk about in a minute. He, he went back to the disciples. What I see in what happened to Judas is that's exactly what Satan likes to do with you and I when we have a failure. We know we're guilty. We know we've fallen short. We know we're going to let down the people around us. We know we've sinned against God. And our first inclination ever since the garden is to hide. It's to hide from God as they did in the garden. It's to hide from each other as they put clothes on. They were no longer cool having that open situation because they were embarrassed of their sin. They hid from each other. And we tend to do that when we've fallen badly too. But here's the risk. You ever watch the Discovery Channel? Okay, you ever watch the herds of wildebeest? Does a lion ever charge in right in the middle of where 200 of them are? How's the lion normally work? There's, there's one at the back of the group, right? And, and he works both sides of the situation, watches usually a younger one until that one lonely wildebeest is off, isolated from the rest of the group. And that's where the lion does his damage. The Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And I believe he works the same way with us. When we fail, he starts to tell us, those people want nothing to do with you. You better not tell them that you have failure in your life, as if they don't know anyways. But we, we, think, we think people think we're perfect. We don't want to ruin that image. So we better stay away from them. He likes to get us alone. Last year we went through the book of Hebrews. So many times it says, do not forsake gathering together. And it says why. It's in one place it says, encourage each other so you're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Another place says, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. He knew when we get alone, Satan's got us where he wants us. Peter, despite his failure, went back with the disciples. And I don't know what that first meeting was like. I don't know if he told them. I don't know what I would do. You know, would you tell those guys what, what happened? I mean, he's obviously broken. These guys were both broken by their sin. You remember that moment where Peter heard the rooster crow the third time and Jesus looked right at him? And it says, Peter ran away weeping. He was broken. Judas was broken. I, I want to bring this up too. It's not that Judas wasn't, wasn't broken about his sin. Do you remember he tried to go back after he found out that Jesus was going to be crucified? I don't know what he was thinking was going to happen. I don't know if he thought, hey, maybe they'll just tell him to shut up and they'll leave him alone. But when it says when, in Matthew 27, when the elders came to the decision to put Jesus to death, they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, listen, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. He is broken. Peter was broken. They were both broken. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money in the temple and left. Judas went out on his own. Peter went back to the disciples. What about you? Do you have any failure in your life recently? Or maybe one in the past that keeps coming to mind? Are you running away on your own? Are you hiding from meaningful relationships with God's people? Or are you pressing into it? 
That's part of why I think missional communities are so important. I think we need to go beyond one hour sitting next to people here on, on Saturday night. We get to, need to get to know each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to be able to be real with each other. If we're not real, we're nothing. Okay, we need each other. The second thing I notice is that Judas, when he was full of remorse, where did he run? He ran to the legalists. And what I mean by legalists, I'm talking about those chief priests that he ran to and said, I, I've sinned, take the money back. And you know what a legalist is, right? It's someone that looks at God's word and says, that's not enough. We need to add a bunch of rules to this. And these rules are going to become as important as the rest of the book. And that's going to become my new standard for being holy. But nobody can live up to all those rules, so all of a sudden it creates this system where everybody's got to be a hypocrite and pretend like they're holy while they miss the most important parts of what God's after, his love and mercy and grace. And this is not a condemnation of Judaism as a whole, because God instituted that, but at this time, Judaism with these chief priests was a hollow shell of what Jesus wanted it to be. If, it, if they were real, they would have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. They were all caught up in their man-made lists of things to do. And when you go to someone like that, they can't help you. Did you see their response? These are people that should have said, Judas, come here, let's make this right. You're broken, let's help you restore what's going on in your life. What they say to them, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money in the temple and left. The same is true today, and unfortunately it's true in some churches even. Legalism is alive and well. You fail in some way in your life, as we all do. And you seek out some believers, and you say, I need help. I have sinned. And the first thing they want to do is not take you to Jesus, not take you to his grace. They give you a list of ten things that they found are necessary for being spiritual. Are they in the Bible? No. But they sound really good. They sound really lofty. And, and they give you this list. And they say, here, go do this. And what does that inevitably lead to? We go out and try to keep a, a list of rules. More failure. And more beating yourself up. And more guilt. Peter... On the other hand, he didn't run to the legalists. He ran to a risen Savior. And we know Jesus had already appeared to Peter before this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5, it says he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. We're never told what happened in that first one-on-one -on -one with Peter. I want to ask God when we get there. I don't know if that was a place where Peter said, Jesus, I'm sorry. And Jesus said, I forgive you. We don't know what happened in that meeting, but later on we do know. John 21, afterward Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter and the boys were together. I say the boys, there's a list of about ten. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So he went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. 
Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And I love this. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. Now, normally, when you jump into the water, don't you take your outer garments off? <laughs> but Peter is so excited that this is Jesus. He puts his outer garment around him, jumps in the water. They have a fish dinner on the beach with the risen Jesus. And then there's this beautiful conversation that I'm so glad John gave us. Jesus and Peter are alone. It says, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you truly love me more than these? A lot of people think that these means the fish because that was his livelihood, fishing. Simon, do you love me more than that livelihood? You love me more than that job that's been your life? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. How many times did Jesus ask him, do you love me? What's the last set of three that would have been in Peter's mind? Three times he denied him. It's almost as though Jesus, and I believe he is, he's looking at Peter and said, Simon, I know you denied me three times, but I'm not done with you yet. I want you to feed my sheep, to lead my church how that must have encouraged him. How many days had he spent beating himself up because he denied the Savior that died for him. And here Jesus is recommissioning him. Judas ran to the legalists. Peter ran to a risen Savior. That's where we need to run with our failures. Don't buy into the stuff that says, hey, if you get right with God, you've got to follow all these man-made rules church or some person or someone who knows who is telling you this is what you got to do to be spiritual go to Jesus who died on the cross paid for your sins rose again and let him deal with your sin let him reinstate you last but not least Judas went on to do the best he could do in his own power with his remorse best he could do in his natural worldly power the trouble with that, as Paul says in Corinthians, is that worldly sorrow leads to death. And we've all seen this in our own lives, sometimes or in the lives of people we know, haven't we? When, when we don't allow our sorrow to drive us to Jesus, when we try to handle it in our own power, it only leads us to a place of despair. Matthew 27, 5 says, He went away and hanged himself. And if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ... You remember those horrible scenes where he was tormented by his guilt and by Satan. And, and I don't know that it was exactly like that, but don't we know what that's like when we try to deal with our guilt on our own? The, the despair, the hopelessness was well represented in that scene. And when we deal with our remorse and our own power, the only place it can lead is death, literally or, or despair. Peter discovered life in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Judas tried to do the best he could in his own power. Peter discovered life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, worldly sorrow brings death, but godly sorrow brings repentance. Change, hope, a new start. That takes the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own. Remember, think of all the things that Peter experienced in the book of Acts. Not to mention he wrote two epistles later on, First and Second Peter. I mean, I alluded to it. Our next message, he, he preached a message and 3,000 people believed in Jesus. He stood before the same leaders that crucified Jesus and said, you're guilty of this. But Jesus has risen again and it's only through trust in him that men are made right with God. Where'd that boldness come from? From this coward. It came from the Holy Spirit. He got that vision from God on his roof and went to talk to Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, and, and his whole family was, was saved. And what I think about when I think of these two, Peter and Judas, was everything Peter got to see and be a part of. That's awesome. That makes me excited. But isn't there a part of you that feels broken for Judas when you think about everything he missed? If you got any shred of mercy in you, you got to feel a little bit of that. Even God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Everything Peter got to experience and everything Judas missed was all because of what they did with their failure. And I want to leave us with the question tonight. What will you do with your own failure? What will you do with your own failure? Will you go it alone? Will you let it isolate you from others and go into hiding like Judas did? Or will you surround yourselves with people who love the risen Savior to encourage you? Will you run to legalists or man-made attempts to get right with God? Will you grit your teeth and try it in your own power? Or will you run to the feet of a risen Savior who died to pay for that? Will you handle it in your own power, which leads to death, or will you discover life in the power of the Holy Spirit? And that choice, I'm talking to two groups of people. Some of you in here have never met the risen Savior. And you're hearing this and you say, man, my whole life I've been going it alone. I need that risen Savior because my life's been frustrating to this point. I need what he offers. I need his death on the cross and his resurrection. I need that. Some of us have been believers for years and we need to remember it's not in our own effort. It's by coming back to his feet. I want to close by sharing an example from my own life because I don't want to tell us to be real as a church if I'm not going to be real as a pastor. It happened Thursday, uh, or Wednesday, excuse me. Our missional community went to mini golf at the mall, the Lunar Golf. Actually pretty cool. Glows in the dark. Eight bucks, you get three, three golf courses, like 36 holes. Who got the best score, by the way? Nick did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's just trying to be humble. He knows. <laughs> just kidding. Well, he we went out there, and me and Caroline and the boys were there, and, and it was one of those nights where, where nothing was going right. We had a soccer practice right before, 
and we were running late, and we're running out of the car, and I, I get to inside the mall, and I see where the group is waiting for us, and I, I'm there, and I look back, and my whole family's like 150 feet behind me, and what, the reason I mentioned that is that became a metaphor for how I've been living the past month in some ways, is I've become, in some ways, I... God woke me up that night at 3 o'clock in the morning because I, I, I looked back at the past month and said that was sort of a picture of how you've been with your family the past month. You've been really preoccupied with the move to the school and everything. And when you're at home, you've been irritable. You've been short. You've been snappy with your family. You've been just, just rude at times. I mean, later on that night, it, I was telling Eric, one of the boys... <laughs> Uh, pooped his pants a little bit while we're doing mini golf and I had to take him out of the mini golf and throw his underwear in the garbage and then we're leaving and one of the boys hit the other one and I was so frustrated by the end of the night and when God woke me up that night and I started uh, looking at my Bible I said Jesus I need your help with this because this is how I've been for the past month I've just been irritable and impatient I, I, I admit that I, I've failed my family in some ways I need your help and and I was reading Psalm 119, and he took me to this passage that said, Turn my heart away from selfish gain. Turn it towards your statutes, your ways. And, and he showed me so much of your irritation and frustration is pure selfishness. It's all about your life, and if it's not going easy enough, then, then you're going to get mad. And then the other verse that, that I camped on that night, that the, the Holy Spirit, I believe, just burned on my heart as I read it was I have sought you with all my heart, God. Be gracious to me and keep your promise. And this, I believe, was written after Jeremiah. What was the promise? God said, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I felt like I found God in that moment. And I said, God, what do I need to do? I know I can't do it on my own. I confess that I've been wrong, but I need your help to, to know how I can better love my family, to put them ahead even of the church to love them as I should, to be the husband and father that I should. And he showed me a few things. Again, these are things not to do my own power, but he showed me, you know, you need to walk with Carolyn when you're going someplace. You don't need to walk 150 feet in front of her. You need to hold her hand and, and be side by side with her, physically and, you know, emotionally. You need, you need to walk with her. You need to listen to her attentively when she's got something going on that's, that's weighing on her, even if it's late, even if your mind is preoccupied with, with trailers and a million other things. You need to shut it off and listen to your wife. Uh, you need to go to sleep in the bed instead of on the couch every night. Don't fall asleep every night watching whatever you're watching. On the, You need to go to sleep in your bed. With your boys, you've got to be gracious and compassionate with them as I am with you. Don't be more, you know, if you're going to discipline them, discipline them not because they're being inconvenient to you, but discipline them for what's best for them. And I wrote all these things down and I just said to God, God, I failed in all these ways. I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me be the husband and father that you've called me to be. I turn it to you. I don't know what God's been convicting you about. Where have you been failing? And I want to encourage you to take the path of Peter. Stay surrounded with people that love you and love Jesus. 
take it to a risen Savior and let the power of the Holy Spirit help you. One last thought. John Piper wrote a controversial article. You'll understand why it's controversial just from the, the title about 20 years ago. It was called Missions and Masturbation. I don't know if you've ever heard that word in church before. If you're sleeping and now you're awake, welcome. <laughs> but he was talking at a, a passion worship, worship conference, or one of the very early ones. Some of you guys have those records. Awesome worship. And he told that group of, of young adults, he said, you know what? The greatest tragedy in sexual sin is not that you've committed that sin. That is a tragedy and you need to deal with it with God. You need to confess it. The greatest tragedy would be if you looked at that sexual sin in your life and allowed the enemy to make you believe that God is done with you. That God can no longer use you for the mission that he has put us here on this planet for. To go out there and change this world. That would be the greatest tragedy. What's he doing? He's saying exactly what I've been saying tonight. Take it to the risen Savior. Let him forgive you, reinstate you, and send you back out on the mission that you've been on. Lord, we all know failure. And I thank you for this contrast in this chapter, Lord. Um, I, thank you, I thank you that Peter wasn't perfect, God, because that's encouraging to us. Because I know we all got three or four or a million things in our minds that we think of that say, man, I fall short. God, thank you for your grace. Please help us to be real with each other when we fall. God, I thank you for that group of pastors I confessed my sin to on Thursday about my family and how they prayed with me and lifted me up and... That was such a special time. We need that with each other, God. Help us to push into each other. Be it here on Saturday or missional communities, out of, out of the restaurant. Lord, help us to be open. Surround each other when we fail. Help us to run away from legalism. Some of us have been caught in that where we're trying in our own power to just please you, God, and we can't do that. Jesus pleased you when he died. He's your son. He paid the price. We need to come to the foot of a risen Savior and say, I believe in what you did for the first time or all over again. That's what I'm trusting in. And God, help us not to try to make it right in our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the eternal God living in us. Help us to be world changers, God. Think about what Peter saw and experienced. And I just love that you're not done with that. God, we want to see salvations. We want to be a part of that, taking your gospel to people that need it across the street and across the world. God, we need to tell people about the times we failed and how you've lifted us up because that makes us real. Lord, even as we give our offering tonight, I pray that it would be towards that end of advancing your kingdom, both locally and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.